what you had to say before it touched me personally. Mom and I, our favorite audience, our children, because they are our future, as you know. They are going to be running our politics, our country. Um, when Mom and I speak to younger children, we always talk about bullying as being an introduction into racism, about how uh, standing around and watch, watching somebody being beaten up is simply not acceptable. Um, they, have to, they have to stand up. Mom has a t-shirt, actually, if you went to the website, a friend of ours makes t-shirts, and on the back, it has the word bystander across it. The word by is crossed, and up is above it. Be an upstander, not a bystander. And uh, this is uh, part of the message that we speak. It's amazing how people can turn against people. It just blows my mind. I always talk about how um, we're all the same. And that's some of what mom teaches. We are all the same. And, uh, and there is no group of people, whether uh, religious, uh, by race, by, by color, by sexual preference. There is no one that has not been um, victimized at some point in history. So mom is going to talk about uh, her history from a happy childhood. If we ever get untangled, I apologize. Um, but uh, mom, tell yes. them about your childhood. Then I had a wonderful childhood. I was brought up by loving, loving parents. Taught me from right to from wrong to right. Taught me everything that I know. And it was wonderful as a youngster. I was sort of a tomboy. I loved to climb the mountains, the trees. It's even my father was a rabbi, and when a student did good, I used to invite him to the house to climb the trees, to take fruits and whatever they wanted. And when I saw my father bringing the boys home, I started, <coughs> excuse me, started climbing the trees because I wanted to be the first one to be on top of the trees. And so it was a wonderful childhood. I had wonderful friends, Jewish, Christians. Of course, when the Nazis came in, my Christian friends called me a dirty Jew. At my age, I did not understand how I was clean yesterday and today I'm dirty. And they beat me up and it was a nightmare, terrible, even before I got to Auschwitz. How old were you at this time when this first happened? How old were you? Yeah. Well, actually, when the Nazis came in, I was 14 years old, but they were there for two years, 
when they decided to put us into a ghetto. Mom, because, tell us about the two years, though. Tell us what it was like it was, before the ghettos, before the yes, concentration camps. It was, it was horrible. All the people that called us friends, all of a sudden, we are dirty Jews. My father, who was a rabbi, had a beard, of course, and they were pulling on his beard until blood was coming out. He had to go home and cut off his beard. It was very traumatic for him and couldn't, couldn't handle it. And it went on like that for two years. We were tortured terribly until the Nazis decided. Mom, tell me about school. Yes, next day when the Nazis came in, we had to wear a yellow Star of David with the word Yuna in the middle. And I went into school and the teacher said this yellow star David threw me out, you dirty Jew. You do not belong here. So I I didn't even finish my eighth grade and I was thrown out of school. And it went on like that, as I say, for two years until the Nazis decided to put us into the ghetto. They made um, a square from 4th Street and they put us into the ghetto. But before that, they told us to take one suitcase and all our pillows and blank quilts that was made out of feathers. And when we got into the synagogue, they tore it open. The synagogue became like a snowstorm. It was just, sometimes I still have nightmares the way my beloved synagogue looked. Mom, did, they, they, did they use like bayonets or knives? Yeah, knives tore them open because they were looking for some jewelry or money that we had maybe. And so it was a very, very horrible nightmare to see my synagogue like that. And they took us into the ghetto, given into the house right across from our home. And we had to watch how our neighbors from the right took all our possession, our chicken, geese, cow, whatever we had, that was the neighbor from the right. The neighbor from the left called out my father's name in the middle of the night and threw over a piece of bread because he knew we were starving. 
They didn't have much either because the Nazis took them away. But whatever he had, he had to share with us. If he would have caught calling out my father's name and threw the bread over, he would have been shot on the spot. And he risked his life for that. We usually talk at this point a little bit about how we would all love to believe that we are yeah. the good neighbor. We are going to always do what's right. We would never do such a horrible thing. But there's so much to consider. For example, um, you're the man of the house. You're trying to make money to put food on the table. You've got a few kids, a wife, a home, and there's none of these to be had because it was poverty stricken. After World War I, uh, Germany was not doing very well. So picture yourself, you're sitting there, and a Nazi comes to you and he says, I'll tell you what, you show us where the Jews are hiding and you can have all their possessions. Yeah. You know, again, it's very nice to think that you'll always, always do the right thing, but until you're thrown into the ugliness of a situation like that, you can never be sure. Yeah, yeah. And so we were in the ghetto for six weeks, then the Nazis decided to take a, put us on a train, actually cattle cars. They pushed in like 500 people in one cattle car. We had no room to sit down even. We had to stand up. If somebody died on the way, we had to hold him up because there was nowhere for him to lay down or anything. And so we were traveling for days and days. And I was holding my mom's hand because she was crying. She was hiding a couple of eggs a week from the Nazis so she could make me a 16th birthday cake, but it never happened. But she was crying on the train till we finally got off the train and right away they threw my father to the right, which later I'm finding out straight to the gas chambers. I was still holding hands with my mom very strongly the Nazi came, tore our hands apart, threw my mom to the right, and took me to the barracks. And we were tortured mercilessly for like three and a half months. Mom, describe the barrack for them, the bunk beds and all of that. Yes. Describe it. Yes. We were, we were, uh, laying 12 women in one bunk bed. We were pushing each other with our legs because we had no room. And it was, it was horrific. We had to stay in line every day to be counted. 
morning and night. I was standing in line with four sisters from my hometown. Um, if you don't and, mind, explain about the count first. Explain. Yes. Twice a day, they had yeah. to all line up in groups Four of five. Hours, whether it was sun shining upon us, or thunder, or storm, and or what, lightning. And what was the count for? Well, the, the Nazis liked to make sure everybody is counted. And some of us, which happened to me too, went to the barbed wire, which was with electricity, because they couldn't suffer anymore. I went to the barbed wires many times, wanting to touch it. But in front of me came my parents' faces, and I could not touch it. I believe very, very strongly God put them in front of me, and I couldn't touch it. But if they're alive, and I'm not. And this is why I believe in God very, very strongly. I believe to be good. If you can't do anything good, don't do anything bad. Love all people regardless of race or religion or anything. Love all people, love God, think positive, and you'll have a happy life. And this is how I live my life today. A hundred percent. Yes. What, um, tell us about the evil you encountered on that line one day. Yes. You see, we were standing in line, and Dr. Mengele, they called him the angel of death, came every morning and every night, just wandering in the, in the line, and whomever he felt, he wants to take away, whether to the death chambers or for experiment, he took him away. One day, he's standing in front of my line, and he had this horrible, horrible silver cane that if he wanted somebody to take out, he pointed that silver cane at them. One day he's standing in front of my line and it looked to me like he points his horrible cane at me. So I'm standing out of the line. He takes that incredibly horrible cane, pushes it into my belly button and pushes me back to the line and takes out my best friend, the youngest of the four sisters, was my best, was my best friend. What was her name? Her name was Rosica. And, she, and he took her away. When we went into the barrack, the mean, mean couple that we had, 
hollers out, is there a family that was taken away? And the three remaining sisters says, yes, our little sister was taken away. And she, with that incredibly mean voice, and her fingers, she points towards the gas chambers. The smoke, the chimney. Yeah. Yeah. And, and says, you see the chimney smoking? This is where your sister is. Up till today, I had this horrible guilt feeling because I thought I was supposed to be there. But I guess that's meant what God meant for me. He meant for me to be here and tell my story. Anyways, we were in the camp for three and a half months, tortured mercilessly. We had to kneel on the rocks until blood was coming from our knees. For the count. Yes, yes, because they had to be counted. That was very important for the Nazis, for some reason. Anyways, and they thought their dogs, the German shepherds, how to take people apart, and we had to watch it. Why we were huddling together and shivering, the Nazis were laughing their heads off. After a few years ago, I was terrified of dogs. None of my children could have dogs. When they left the house, they all had dogs. And one day, I got very sick. And my older son, Mark, may he rest in peace, calls me and says, Mom, I would love to come and see you, but I just bought a little puppy and I can't leave her home. I'll take her with me and I'll hold her in my lap. I says, okay, I wanted to see my son. So I says, okay, come. And he sits down on the, on the couch where I was laying, and this little puppy puts out her little tongue. And my son says, Ma, this was a kiss. I says, really? He says, give her a little pet, see what she's going to do. Shakily, shakily, I give her, trying to give her a little pet, and the puppy puts out her little tongue again. And my son said, Ma, she really loves you. I says, really? <laughs> give her another pet, and I gave her another and another, till I fell in love with that puppy. And I used to take her to the park, play with her. She got me out of the nightmares 
about dogs. You know, just to add, she got you out of the nightmares about the dogs. But because of her experiences on the line every day, she was terrified of thunder and lightning. She still is, although I try to convince her it's God laughing. Ah, listen to him laughing. So um, her and the dog, Dinah, because my brother used to leave Dinah with her a lot, yeah. would huddle in the bottom of the closet together. Yeah. When the thunder was coming, we hid in and huddled together. Yeah. Anyways, one couple of years later, uh, his veterinarian calls up and he says, Mark, did Dinah do some, anything special? Because they're giving out awards for dogs that did something special. So my son says, well, the only thing I know, my mom is a Holocaust survivor and she had terrible nightmares about dogs, but she got her out of the nightmares. This veterinarian sent us tickets to Las Vegas and Dinah got the Wonder Dog of the Year. Yes. I mean, there were dogs there. One of them had barked to the owners when the baby had fallen into the pool. Yes. But Dinah was first place yes. Wonder yeah. Dog of the Year. Yeah. 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 So, Mom, so then um, going back. Yes. So one thing, <coughs> I've heard Mom's story, obviously, at least a million times by now. <laughs> but um, the one thing that I did notice, because Mom had some friends, unfortunately, a lot of them passed away, because the survivors are, are, are dying. Mom's the only one left in Prescott, Arizona. And, uh, and so are the liberators. They are also dying. But uh, the one thing that all survivors had in common was some form of a miracle, because there's no other explanation for the fact that they're yeah. still here. So you see, after three and a half months in Auschwitz, the Nazis decided to take women to labor camp. In the meantime, I befriended a very nice woman, two years older than I. Her name was Helen, and they became like sisters. And when they started taking women to the labor camp, the Nazis, you see the barracks had no doors. So the Nazis decided to put an incredibly heavy, heavy barrier towards the door and looked at us and they left a little opening and they looked at us and whomever they felt that could go to work pushed them into the barrack, whom <coughs> not, they pushed them away. They pushed into the barrack my so-called sister, but they pushed me away, which later I find out straight to the gas chambers. Mama, you, you need it? Yeah, thank you. You're welcome.
There you Anyways, go. they pushed in my so-called sister, and they pushed me away, and I'm standing there and crying. Now I lost my so-called sister, too. As I'm standing there and crying, this unbelievably heavy barrier fell over and I snuck into the barrack. And this is why I don't have a tattoo, because I wasn't supposed to be here. But God had other plans for me. So, by the time I snuck in the barrack, they already took my so-called sister to another labor camp, and they took me to a different labor camp. We were nine and a half months, we worked in an ammunition factory, and uh, working 12 hours a day, every two weeks, we were 24 hours because this shift changed and I was so exhausted that, you see, I was soldering handles to mines that they threw in the ocean for the ships to explode. I was so exhausted working 24 hours that many times I handled I soldered my fingers to the handles. And this is why I don't have any fingerprints. But the United States was very, very nice to me. I could have been a criminal. I had no fingerprints. I was still not completely <laughs> sure. <laughs> but they still gave me an American visa, which I'm very proud to be an American today. Thank you. Anyways, after nine and a half months in the labor camp, we still didn't have enough food, but we had our own bunk bed and that, and we had a little better food, a little more, but we had to stay in line to be counted every morning and every night. And we had to stay in line for our food. As I'm standing in line for my food, they gave us one of those army... Uh, like a tin bowl. Yeah, yeah. And um, we're standing in line for the food. And a woman comes in front of me and she already has her bowl dirty. So we start arguing in Hungarian. I says, Ilonka was her name. I says, Ilonka, I didn't have my food yet. And she says, yes, but I'm still hungry. And we arguing back and forth in Hungarian until a Nazi comes. She didn't know what we were arguing about, but she decided to beat me up mercilessly, mercilessly. I couldn't get up. I crawled back into my 
bunk bed and I couldn't get up next morning. But we had a good couple in the labor camp. When she saw I can't get up, she went to work for me so they could be counted because if not, they would have come look for me and take me back to Auschwitz, to the gas chambers. So if anybody's counting, that's miracle number two. <laughs> Go ahead. Anyways, after a few days, I was able to get off and go back to work. And I'll never forget her name. She saved my life. Her name was Branya. And she saved my life. We were working for nine and a half months in that labor camp until the American soldiers started coming forward and so they took us what they called a death march because many of us died on the road no food no water walking for days and days until we wound up in another labor camp and the germans locked us in for two weeks and this is where I found my so-called sister again. We were very, very happy. Even though we had no food or water, but at least we had each other. After two weeks, the American soldiers came, shut open the gate, and said, you are free. Of course, we didn't understand a word. We huddled together, terrified, until they found us a Jewish soldier and explained, you are free, and go into town and take whatever you like. Of course, I didn't want anything. I thought I'm gonna go home find my parents, everything. But I picked up a big, big jar of honey. Which grows each <laughs> telling. I can picture her now with a barrel of honey. <laughs> because this, yeah, a big yeah. jar of honey. And I lifted up with my fingers. By the time I got back to the camp, I was deadly ill. And the soldiers took me to the infirmary and they called me the honey girl. And so, years and years later, you want to explain? Sure. So, my granddaughter's 18. At this point, she was two. And uh, we decided to go watch a Fourth of July celebration. And little Jasmine is sitting in the stroller and she's moved by, by the feeling, the camaraderie, the celebration, the fireworks, the singing. And she's sitting there in the stroller. She's not hungry, she's not dirty, but tears are running down her face. And my daughter, Alana, and I were just blown away by how she was taking this in. So when I spoke to my mother the next morning, I told her what had happened, and she says to me, did I ever tell you about my first 4th of July? 
And it turned out that, uh, okay, so the soldiers came April the 14th, 1945, but they didn't leave until September. And in the meantime, of course, 4th of July happened. And uh, the uh, prisoners had absolutely no idea what this celebration was about. And so mom says, I was sitting there and I was just so moved yeah. by everything going on around me that I had tears running down my face. And then she adds, if I could just meet one of those soldiers that liberated my camp, my life would be complete. So, of course, that's a challenge. <laughs> I went on the internet, I, I looked and I found that the 84th Division, which is who liberated them, the 84th, was having a reunion the following month in the Midwest. So I called over there and uh, I, I, there was a contact number. I called, I spoke to the gentleman and he says, I'm, I'm really sorry, but I'm quite certain that we don't have anyone from, that, from World War II. He says, we're 18 year olds on up, but I don't think we have anyone left from World War II. I said, if I write a letter, will you post it? He said, absolutely, which is what he did. About a month later, the phone rings on a Sunday morning. My husband, Frank, was shaving. I answer the phone and the gentleman says, hi. My name is Max Lieber. You don't know me, but you wrote a letter. And I froze. I mean, I absolutely froze. I yelled for my husband, and he comes running out half-shaven. I said, what, what? I said, it's him. It's the soldier on the phone. And Frank took the call. And um, so he lived in New Mexico. Mom lived in Phoenix. He couldn't wait to come to New Mexico to meet her. And jumped in the car with his daughter. And I had decided I was going to surprise Mom. I, I was going to just tell her, uh, because everybody was coming in to see this. You know, my kids, my grandkids. Um, so I told her it was somebody's birthday and we were celebrating. Mm -hmm. And then the day before, my husband says to me, Rachel, do you really think it's a great idea to tell an 80-plus woman who has, at that point, eight heart stents. Do you really think it would be a good idea to surprise her? And I, hmm. <laughs> so the whole family, the homeless papa, is sitting on her, on her terrace. And, um, but mom is very easily distracted by one thing, a baby. Any baby. I can't get out of Walmart. I can't get out of Walmart. Anyway, so um, she's playing with the two-year-old and the three-year-old, my grandkids. And she can't, I can't distract her. Mom, mom, yeah, yeah, well, would you look how cute they are? I said, I know, mom, but I have to tell you something. Okay, okay, wait one minute. Let me just pick this one. It was trying to get her was impossible. Finally, I yelled out, Mom! And she turns around and looked at me and I said, you remember you said you would do anything if, if we ever found one of the soldiers? And still half distracted, she says, yeah, yeah. I said, he's coming tomorrow. The first words out of her mouth, like any Yiddish mama, we have no food in the house. We have to go shopping right away. 
Well, when Max came in, it was, ah, there's no description. My sister, Franny, who also has passed away. Yeah. May she rest in peace. Uh, Franny was a, a chatterbox. I used to say Franny was the only person I knew that could speak on the out-breath and the in-breath. <laughs> Just, you know, and, and she was. So the doorbell rings, and Mom is in the living room, and she's going towards the door. But Franny beat her. Franny beat her, opened the door, and is standing between them. All they want to do is embrace, and she's like, oh my god, I can't believe we found you. What an amazing... Franny, get out of the way. And it was incredible. Max Lieber, I have his picture up here if anybody is interested. He was an amazing, amazing man. Um, he had perfect recollection of every day that he was in the Army. Yeah. And uh, we loved him dearly. He, he uh, passed a few years ago, and we miss yeah. him. Yeah. But he, he was her American hero. Now, what you need to know is Max was born in Germany. His parents didn't care for the politics as they were changing there. By the way, Max was Christian, just an aside. But his parents didn't care for the way things were looking in Germany, so they picked up their family, and they came to the United States from where he was drafted to go back to Germany to fight the Nazis. Yeah. 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 Anyways, he became the best of friends. We were going back and forth, and one day we're sitting in his living room, socializing, and he looks at me and he says, Esther, do you like honey? I says, not anymore. And he says, I know why, you're the honey girl. And this is why my documentary is called The Honey Girl. So talk about liberation. Yeah. Liberation. They were liberated. The soldiers took such good care of us. Give us food three times a day, plus tapioca pudding because they felt that that might bring us back to health. And it was wonderful. But then, in the month of September, the, uh, being I was born, and when I was born, my town was Czechoslovakian, so my birth certificate is Czechoslovakian, and the, the Czech people decided to take the Jewish people home first. So, I got on the ship to Prague, the capital of Czech, Slovakia, and from Prague, we took a train to Budapest, to the capital of Hungary, but I had to take another train yet to go to my hometown. As I got off the train, to take another train, the only cousin that survived of a family of 35 people 
came to the train station every day because he was liberated first. He came to the train station every day to see who's coming home. And I got off the train. And uh, he was very happy to see me. He says, Esther, no use for you to go home. Nobody survived. The Russians even took over your house. So you know where to go. But we have an uncle in Israel, it was Palestine then, and I have a very good friend who's taking orphans towards Palestine. I'll introduce you to him, and he'll take you along and help you find our uncle. I had no choice, I said, okay. He takes me to his friend, introduces me. He was 23 years old and he was taking upon himself 60 orphans between ages of 12 and 18. I was 17. And so he took me along and of course first thing first, where are you from? Where are you from? And when I tell him the name of my town, he says, well, I had a great uncle there. And I says, who was your great uncle? And when he told me it was the Sphinker rabbi, I was in awe of him right away. My father, who was also a rabbi, used to take me to this Sopinka rabbi to bless me every year. That's how incredibly famous he was. And anyways, when he told me who his uncle was, I think I fell in love with him right then and there. And anyways, we started going towards Israel. Palestine then, and we were walking for days and days and months. In the road, we fell in love, road, and we were traveling a lot. We wound up in one of the displaced persons camp in Germany. But before that, Mom, tell them about the, the nuns taking care of you. <laughs> <laughs> you see, we, wherever we could find food or lodging, we, we were there. And one day we wound up in a monastery. They were very happy to give us some lodging and food every day. But we had to stay in line, 60 people, for the food. And one day, as we standing in line, one of the nuns gives us a piece of bacon. And I didn't want to take it after all. My good friend is <laughs> a nephew of the great Supinka Rabbi. How, how can I take the bacon? And he tells me in Hungarian, Esther, 
just think it, I'm Eden. I looked at him. <laughs> you can eat it? Of course I took it and I gave it to him. Many days we were finally we wound up in a displaced person's camp, which was called Father's Raven. And we realized that it's going to take a long time to get to Palestine. So we got married in the displaced person's camp. This is my wedding picture. You see, the American soldiers gave us these jackets, gave me a blanket to, for the girls in the kibbutz to make me a skirt, because I was wearing jeans. A bride shouldn't get married in jeans. So they sold me a skirt. The boys in the kibbutz sold the ration of cigarettes for a month to buy me a piece of white material. After all, a bride should wear something white. So this is my wedding picture. <laughs> Anyways, after three months, I got pregnant. Of course, I had no idea. All right, let's, let's tell that story. <laughs> I'm sorry, Ma, you're going to have to tell this one from the beginning. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, in Europe, you didn't know the facts of life until the day you're getting married, your mom takes you to the bedroom and explains you the facts of life. But I had no mother anymore. So, after about three months, a woman next door got a bicycle. So I asked her to loan it to me. I wanted to show off my new husband that I know how to ride a bicycle. So I get on the bicycle and I holler, Joe, Joe. He comes out and I fell down and I broke my knees. And they picked me up and took me to the infirmary, and I grew up. And the nurses spoke only German, says to me, are you pregnant in German? I didn't understand it, so they took me upstairs. There was a Hungarian doctor, and he tells me in Hungarian, you're pregnant, you know that. I says, no. He looks at me, he looks, the United Nations gave us a very thin wedding band. He looks at my fingers and he says, I see you're married. I says, so? And he says, so what? What do you think was happening to you? I says, I thought I was having fun. <laughs> My favorite story. I love that story. <laughs> so anyways, when the kibbutz realized I'm pregnant, they didn't want the baby to be born in Germany. 
So they tried to take us to Israel, but we had to go to France. We took a ship to France, to, to, from France, we took the ship towards Palestine. We were traveling for days and days, and finally we got to the port of Haifa. We already were singing the Hatikwa, the Hebrew national anthem, when the British came, called us, took us up by force from the ship. With they threw tear gas into the ship and took us up by force, took us onto another ship and took us to Cyprus. We were there for six months. Also, not so good food, surrounded with bad wires, not with electricity, but it was barbed wires, just the same. So finally, after six months, they decided to take 50 people at a time to Israel. To Palestine. Yeah, Palestine. Being that I wasn't 18 yet and I was pregnant, they were among the first ones to finally get to Palestine. Eretz Israel. They were very, very happy. They, they were very, very poor, but I was so happy. I wasn't afraid of policemen. I'm still terrified sometimes of policemen. Of uniform, of uniforms. Yeah, of uniform. I'm shaking, but not in Israel. A Jewish policeman, even though I would have committed a crime, I'm sure I would have been taken to jail. But I wasn't afraid. I wasn't afraid of anything. We lived a very, very happy life. So, in 1948, we got to Palestine uh, end of 46, December 46. Two weeks later, Rachel was born. <laughs> Anyways, so, when the 1948 war broke out, my husband and three of his brothers went into the army next day. And one of his brothers died. My father-in-law, who was already in Toledo, Ohio, he was also a rabbi, sent us such sad letters how sad it is to lose a child. Which now I understand. I lost two of my children in the last two years. And so, finally, after a couple of years or so, 
My husband said us that we have to go to the United States. But we couldn't come straight to the United States. We had to go to France. We were there for six months. Then we finally got the Canadian visa. And we got to Canada. We were there for six years. Then finally, finally, we got the American visa in 1958. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, when we lived in Canada, I already had three children and I was walking with them on the street and one day as I'm walking I see a woman running, running away and I hollered after her, Ilunko, where are you running? And she's the woman that because of her I was beaten up so bad. And she tells me, you mean you're not gonna beat me up? I says, why should I? You were hungry, I was hungry. Now we have a full belly and we became the best of friends. I lived six years in Canada. She took care of my children. I took care of her children when she went shopping and it was a wonderful experience. Tell them about, was it Brooklyn with the bakery? Yeah. In the meantime, when we got to, to the United States, we went to Brooklyn, Long Island, uh, the Coney Island Avenue. And one day, we were walking the children were already in school and my husband and I are walking on Coney Island Avenue and we see a new bakery. So my husband says, well, let's go in, see if we can afford something good. We go in and I holler, Branya, and my husband hollers, Branya. Branya was the woman that because of, she saved my life. She was the good couple. Was the good couple in, in the labor camp. Small world. And my husband, where he grew up, and Branya lived there. They were good friends. It was just an amazing thing. Talk about miracles. Oh, yeah. I believe in miracles very strongly. Well, given the number of times you've almost died on me, yeah, I said to her, yes. you know, even cats only have nine lives. <laughs> but, Anyways, um, yeah. You see, we lived a happy life, 58 years. But he died almost 20 years ago. Anyways, uh, yeah, I know. I, I, yeah. I have to say, yeah. so my parents were completely different. My mother was raised in a very loving environment. Um, 
Her parents were wonderful. She, she was very um, um, sheltered, extremely yeah. sheltered. Yes, yes. My father lost his mother when he was a baby, practically. He was 40 years old. And he had a baby brother. And my grandfather had to remarry the mother-in-law yeah. from hell. And um, you know, she, then, yeah. Then the, you know, Shaq Khan. What was that? Matchmaker. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. Came and introduced her to my father-in-law, and he says, I have two boys, ages of four and two, and she says, oh, I love, love children. Soon as they got married, she said, I can only take care of one. The older one has to go. So my husband was thrown from aunts to uncles, whoever wanted to take him in. So he really didn't have a childhood. Yeah. He was watching, at age 12, he was watching how his friends were playing on the street and he had to work like a slave laborer for his uncle. He, uh, he, yeah. he didn't, well, he fell in love. Yeah. And mom was his saving grace. But aside yeah. from his relationship with my mother and his kids, yeah. he was very angry, he was very bitter, yeah. complete opposition of my mother. In fact, I always felt like my mother yeah. was more my sister yeah. than my mother. Well, we're pretty close in age, yeah, she's 18. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, yeah. for Dad, he died. How old was Dad? 80? 80? 80. How old was Dad? 80. 80. Yeah. It I was mean, 80 in September and he passed away in February. Yeah, I know. On, on almost our 58th wedding anniversary, yeah. he was already so sick, he couldn't speak. But all my children were there. And he calls over my younger daughter with his finger and he says, Franny, today is our wedding anniversary. You better go and get mom a dozen roses. Who was thinking of anniversaries or roses or anything? But he remembered history. Yeah. It was gone two weeks later, yeah. yeah. Two weeks, I think. Yes. Anyway, before we open for questions, I, I would like to, if you don't mind, add just a couple of things. Um, I've been speaking with mom for dozens and dozens and dozens of talks. And what I realize is that children are born blank slates and they're innocent and they're loving and then we write on them we write our our prejudices our disappointments um and it, it, i think it's a horrible thing when i was six when we lived in canada um the children uh, we lived in a really poor neighborhood we had no money and i was the only jew in the school and at six, the other six-year-olds would wait outside every day to beat me up because I killed Christ. 
and because I had horns and because I drank the blood of Jewish babies. But where did they get that? Where would a six-year-old get such a thing? Yeah. yeah. Because somebody drew on him this kind of hate and this kind of prejudice. And what Mama and I are doing is very difficult. I mean, we're both old ladies and we're, we're doing all this traveling, but it has to be done. It has to be done as does the documentary that we are working on. Uh, we're about three quarters of the way there financially, but we do need further donations. I, I hope that you use the cards that were given out. There's a website on there where you can see a preview to our film and uh, a donate button at the bottom. So anything you are able to send is greatly appreciated. Um, I don't make that a big thing because it's not our priority. Our priority is to spread the word. To spread the word that hate and anger are baggage. And if you put them down, you are really able to live a good life. Mom and I have a lot of fun. Uh, we go dancing a couple nights a week. Mom loves the penny machines. And the, fun, and the joke is that she gets a very small stipend from Germany once a month, a couple of hundred dollars. She takes it from the Germans and she gives it to the Native Americans. <laughs> You see, I just I tell you just one more thing. You see, when Steven Spielberg made that movie Schindler's List, he took all the proceeds and sent out people from Hollywood to Holocaust survivor who wants to make a tape of their lives. And my husband and I made a tape which is in the Washington Museum, by the way. And so, when the woman from Hollywood finished my story, she says, Esther, how do you feel about the Germans today? I says, well, I cannot forget the horror they put me through, but I can forget. Because if I don't forget, if I hold a grudge, I only hurt myself. This woman from Hollywood helped me, telling me I was the first Holocaust survivor to answer her the question the way I did. But I believe in it very strongly. Yeah, you do. Thank you very much. Wow, thank you so much, um, Esther and Rachel, for sharing the story. Um, there are a few things that I want to mention. Um, we're going to do a Q&A, so if you, haven't, uh, if you have questions that you've written down, please pass them forward. If you don't have questions that you've written down but you have questions, please take a quick moment to write them down and pass them forward. Around you. One second, sorry. Um, and then uh, while those get passed forward, again, if you have them, please bring them up. I do want to mention once again this very special documentary that is being worked on about Esther's life and her incredible heart. And I think all of us today have experienced her spirit and her love and her just, just this warmth and kindness 
and generosity of spirit that she emanates. And it's really beautiful, and the documentary is such a special project. The Torah Center, we will be making a donation toward this documentary, and those that wish to make one, you can certainly check out the website, the information, um, honeygirlfilms.org. Be very careful, because if you don't put in films, if you just put in Honey Girl, you'll get more triple X-rated sites <laughs> than you can begin to imagine. Not rabbi approved. <laughs> this rabbi approves only honeygirlfilms.org. Make sure to spell it exactly the way it's written here. <laughs> I take zero responsibility for anything I outside of this, this spelling. Um, there are... <laughs> Sorry. This is fantastic. <laughs> um, okay, I just want to ask you a few quick things. We're going to do a Q&A in just a moment. Um, but a few quick things. We are having, you know, in the spirit of love and community and connection, we are having a very special Shabbat. This coming Shabbat, we're calling it Shabbat out of Africa. It is, a, is an African or South African themed Shabbat with a Friday night dinner and beautiful music presentation throughout the Chaz and the Cantor throughout Shabbat. So uh, consider joining us. There's information around the seats and the table outside. We have classes and other courses coming up. The point is that when we are inspired, we can bring light into the world. And the more inspiration and the love that we can share, whether it's through opportunities like these or in your own home or in our community, it's, uh, it's we need to keep on sharing the love and pay the love forward. And, um, you know, I, I just want to mention first, and I know I mentioned this kind of before, but just being in the car with you yeah, last night when I, I picked you guys up from the airport and took you over to the hotel, and, and Esther, just your, your spirit is amazing, and your love radiates, and it's genuine, and it's authentic, and it's beautiful, and may you have many, many, many more years of health and happiness, gesund and nachas, and the ability to keep on sharing the light in your story with thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of more people. And I think we can all wish the same. Uh, any questions that we have on cards? Yes? Come bring them up. Come bring them up. They're, uh, you just need a volunteer to be a runner. Okay. Because I don't, you don't have to run. We're just calling you a runner. No need to run. Okay. Here we go. And Rabbi, keep on, also uh, keep mention uh, Wednesday, we'll be speaking at... Yes, and one more thing. If you know anybody in the um, Forsyth area, um, Esther and Rachel will be speaking up at Forsyth on Wednesday night, Wednesday evening. So please look out for I don't information know. And, uh, and pay that information forward. Okay, um, here we go. Um, Esther, this question is for you. What was your first language that you spoke with your parents? And um, what languages have you learned throughout your life? I spoke with my parents Hungarian, but I spoke with my grandparents Yiddish, Jewish. And then I learned in Israel Hebrew. And then now I learned a little English. Tell them how you learned, Tell them how you learned English. <laughs> Through the soap operas. <laughs> you see, by the time we got to Canada, I already had two babies. So I couldn't go to school or anything. I opened the TV 
And that's how I learned English. And this is why I don't speak so good. I, I think she speaks beautifully. I don't know. As the world turns. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. How many siblings did you have? I was an only child. Only child. Okay, except, yeah, you, you mentioned except my father was married before, had two boys, but I didn't know them. They came to visit, but so many cousins that I thought they're my cousins too. But they were half Nobody half told brothers. me they're my brothers. But many, many years later, then I got to Israel and met my uncle. He says, you know, your brothers are coming. I says, what brothers? He says, don't you know you have two brothers? They know who I was. And they were arguing between them, who's going to take care of their baby sister? And I, and I show up with my own baby. <laughs> <laughs> they got more than they bargained for. Oh, yeah. Uh, did you realize who Dr. Mangale was when you saw him? Or did you not realize, like, did he, was he known throughout the camp? The angel of death. Well, we saw him every day. But did you realize? Yeah. What power he had. Yeah, do you know at the time in, what, what it meant when he... No. Not in our shows, but later, later on. on I'm finding out, yes. Okay. Um, okay, uh, let's get to some questions here. Did you ever go back to Europe or to visit? Never, never. If they threw me out, I don't want to be dead. But my only dream, my only dream is to go back to Israel one more time to see my homeland where I feel safe, where I feel at home so much. Yeah, go try to explain to her that there are discos and you know, it's a whole different world. She was in a kibbutz, you know. No, not in a kibbutz. But, but the, in but a was, kibbutz in, in the displaced persons. But still, it was a yeah. different, world. different world. Yes, yes. I know. How do you think that you were able to maintain your faith in God, even despite the horrors? And some survivors turned their back and checked out. And understandably, and how do you, how do you, what do you think that you? That's how I feel. That's how I was brought up to believe in God, to think positive, to love all people, and that's how even in Auschwitz, once in a while they let us go on the street. Ninety-nine and a half of the woman, 99.5% of the woman said, there is no God. How can he look down on this order and do nothing? I never, ever believed it. I always said to myself, there is a God. He knows what he's doing, and I follow him. We recently went yeah. to a concert, and they had specifically invited us to hear this song. 
the song was composed of three lines. And it was written on a wall in a tunnel where some Jews hid. And it said, I believe in the sun even when it's not shining. I believe in love even when I'm not feeling it. And I believe in God even when he is silent. And and this is what I am telling you through. I'm not religious anymore. I was brought up very religious, but but I believe in God so strongly. If not for God, I wouldn't be here. He was the one that made sure I'm not going to touch the bad wires. He was the one that made sure that incredibly heavy barrier fell over so I could sneak in. I didn't know where we were going. I was just happy that I didn't believe my so-called sister. This didn't happen. (laughs) Uh, Question about your mishpacha. Um, How many uh, children, grandchildren, I know you have four children, uh, but grandchildren, how many grandchildren? Eight grandchildren and four great-grandchildren. One of whom is getting married in May. Mazel tov. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Yes, yes. Um, Hopefully I'll have great, great-grandchildren. <laughs> Please God. <laughs> Who knows how it happens? Um, <laughs> Don't start, <Robert. laughs> We're already there. All right, um, question here is, um, what was the process of recovering emotionally from all the trauma that you had and experienced? Was there something specifically that, or was it just a slow process? Anything that you can say in that regard? Well, I just feel very strongly love, I love people. You see, I fell in love with my husband when I was 17, and he, 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 That was part of the emotional feeling. You see, my husband didn't know about love until he met me. And so we shared our love together and lived very, very happily for 58 years. We didn't always have all the things, but I didn't need it. If I didn't have it, I can do without it. Never give it another thought. I think that's a good attitude that we can all learn today. After today, after today, if I have a piece of bread and butter, I'm happy. If, she if has I can put a, a little of more butter on the bread, yeah. I'm even happier. <laughs> she likes a little bread with her butter. <laughs> um, all right, we have two more questions. So here, this question is, why do you think that it is important to remember the Holocaust? So that it should never, ever, ever happen again. And that's why at 95, I'm going all over the country, talk about it to make sure people understand that it will never 
happen again. And she drags me behind her. <laughs> yes, she yes. Is, You are a powerhouse, Esther. And fin <laughs> the final question uh, that we'll present to you tonight is, what can we do, all uh, of us here, to ensure never again? We had that question at a high school. Yes, you did. We had a young man stood up in the audit, huge auditorium, and he said, what can I do to make sure this never happens again? Yes. I said, what you can do is you are a witness to a first-hand witness. If somebody says to you, it never happened, or it was exaggerated, you yeah. know different, and you can spread that for us. You yes. can all spread that for us. You see, uh, quite a few years ago, I'm guessing maybe six, seven years ago, the government of Nevada, Reno, Nevada, invited three Holocaust survivors and three American soldiers that liberated our camps to speak. We spoke in an auditorium, which was supposed to be like 150 people. There were hundreds and hundreds. was no room sitting. They were standing in the hallway. And all said, they'll make sure it'll never happen again. And we spoke in four high schools. The fourth one, I shall never ever forget. They were juvenile delinquents. And the teacher warned me, Mrs. Bash, they don't know how they'll behave. But if they, if they misbehave, we'll just take them out. And I said, well, I'm a tough cookie. <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, these youngsters listened in awe. And when I finished, they came to hug me and thanking me. And the teacher looks at me and says, Mrs. Bash, we never ever heard a thank you from these youngsters until you showed up. Yeah. Which warms my heart that, I, that I'm doing something good. Yeah. You see, I spoke at the, the Yavapai College in Prescott, and then I finished my story, a man comes to me and says, well, thank you so much for enlightening me. I didn't speak to my brother for 20 years, but if you can forgive the Germans, I'm gonna go home, Call my brother and tell him I forgive him. It warmed my heart, sure. made me feel so good I did something good. It, it so. is my belief, I'm no psychologist, but it is my belief that a lot of troubled youngsters in particular, not only youngsters, I'm talking about addicts, I'm talking about, they perceive themselves to be victims. Yeah. either of their parents, of their school, of society in general, but they're victims. And then this little 95-pound victim comes in full of love and joy 
and they want some. That's what happens, it, in my opinion. I've seen it over and over and over. Yeah. So. That's beautiful. Yeah. Esther, I want, I want you to know this. I can only speak for myself, but I want you to know that you have touched my heart. Oh, thank and you. your story will um, forever live within me. Thank you so much. And um, I want to thank you for coming here and for speaking to all of us. I thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you, thank you all for coming. It was an amazing evening. Thank you very much.